0: The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.
1: I've been missing this word. Sleaze,
2: sleaze, sleaze. And it's all on his watch. With this scandal now firmly centered on him, how on earth does he expect people to believe that he is the person to clean this mess up?
1: Welcome to Payne's Politics. And while Seb's off finishing his book on the Labour Red Wall, welcome to another special edition of Parker's Politics with me, George Parker. You heard there Keir Starmer attempting to link Boris Johnson to that old Westminster favourite, sleaze, in the same way Tony Blair successfully associated John Major with the word back in the 1990s. We'll be looking at the latest allegations of favours for chums levelled against the Prime Minister with our columnists Robert Shrimsley and Helen Thomas. And later, we'll be talking through the fallout of the European Super League debacle, and whether it's time for the politicians to get more involved in football. With our sports editor, Murad Ahmed, and the chairman of Crystal Palace Football Club, Steve Parish. Before we get on to all that, Robert and Helen, can I ask whether you were disappointed to learn this week that Boris Johnson's abandoned plans for White House-style daily media briefings, having hired former BBC journalist Allegra Stratton to host them, and having spent over two and a half million quid building a glorified TV set.
2: No, I mean, I was astonished they ever thought it was a good idea and for how long they persisted with it. Obviously, they did it originally because they thought they'd had a lot of success during the COVID briefings, reaching over the heads of journalists and putting their message directly to the public. But I think as things moved forward, they realised they were just giving television cameras footage every day of one of their spokespeople being besieged with the latest government crisis. It was a bad idea, and I'm not surprised they've abandoned it.
3: Agreed, agreed. I mean, absolutely no one I've ever spoken to ever thought these things were going to happen. So it's remarkable that it took this long, really.
1: One thing Allegra Stratton won't have to do now is defend the Prime Minister against the latest allegations that he presides over a casualisation of government, or worse, in which mates can text him and his senior ministers in the hope of a quick favour in return. The FTs led the way in the reporting of David Cameron's lobbying efforts on behalf of Greensill Capital. Eight separate inquiries underway on that affair. And this week, the BBC revealed how James Dyson successfully lobbied Boris Johnson to get the tax rules changed to help company staff engaged in a dash to build a new COVID-19 ventilator. Some in Downing Street are blaming Dominic Cummings, Johnson's former advisor, for that leak. Coming up against Keir Starmer in the Commons, Johnson was typically robust on the Dyson text messages.
4: If he's referring to uh, the request from James Dyson, I make absolutely no apology at, at all, Mr Speaker, for shifting heaven and earth to secure ventilators uh, for the people of this country and to save lives and to roll out a ventilator procurement, uh, which the uh, Labour-controlled uh, public accounts Committee themselves uh, said was a benchmark uh, for procurement.
1: Helen Thomas, can you explain what happened here and why it raised so many hackles?
3: Now. Last March, when everyone was very, very worried about not having enough ventilators and rationing of care, the Prime Minister launched his ventilator challenge to encourage buccaneering British business to step up and produce ventilators. And as part of that, he called James Dyson, who has been based in Singapore, which is where his headquarters is. Now, what happened subsequently is that Dyson was texting the Prime Minister requesting clarification on his tax status and the tax status of his staff if they're based overseas were they to come and work on this project in the UK. Now HMRC had already clarified that if you were stuck here because flights were cancelled and quarantine and so on that that wouldn't count as tax residency and what James Dyson wanted additionally changed was to make clear that work on the COVID response was permitted at that time. The Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, did that early April. He made clear that if you were coming to work on the Covid response, not just the ventilator challenge, I should say, healthcare, other types of work, then that wouldn't count for tax residency. I think what's controversial is, again, this is a billionaire texting the Prime Minister asking for very specific changes to in fairness, contributes to a worthy cause. And I think a lot of people look at this and say, OK, the Prime Minister was trying to get ventilators in a hurry. But it's the allegation of privileged access, and it's also the sort of chummy, casual tone of the responses that he got. And talking about, you know, Rishi will fix it, I'm First Lord of the Treasury, we're backing you to do whatever you need.
1: And of course, this follows on, doesn't it, Robert, from the Greensill Affair, where David Cameron was bombarding Treasury officials, Treasury ministers, to try and get access to government COVID loan schemes for Seal Capital, which has now collapsed. But so far, nobody
2: seems to have actually broken any rules. What does that tell us about the rules? In a sense, that's the key point. It says that the rules are too vague. For example, the question of who classifies as a lobbyist and therefore has to be registered. They don't always cover informal communications, private chats, the odd text message. It's also very possible for ministers to classify a meeting as private or party And some of that doesn't have to be classified as accurate. I think one of the issues here, and Helen touched on this, is that this argument that's being made against this government and the previous government of a sort of chumocracy, a network of friends who've all got each other's numbers and can all contact each other. And that's obviously worrying for political favours, not necessarily corrupt political favours, but just preferential treatment. And you set that against the issue of the pandemic crisis. And I think most people will look at the Boris Johnson, James Dyson text and go, fair enough, he needed to get this man into Britain to get ventilators made. Very little mud is going to stick to him over this. It's the underlying point that business leaders feel well, they can just text the prime minister and get something that's bothering them done. And that's where you have the potential for problems.
1: Hello, I think some of our listeners will be thinking, hmm, senior business people, politicians, they've always had a cosy relationship. What's new? Are we actually learning anything new and disturbing about that relationship?
3: Uh, I think, uh, you know, I spoke to some people earlier this week when this broke who said, in essence, this is the type of conversation between business and government that has been had for a long time. You know, the request was actually pretty reasonable. I think we all agree that the change was probably quite reasonable given the context of the pandemic. I think it's the way it was done and the tone of the response that really made people sit up and take notice and you know the fact that there've been reports this week that Boris Johnson's phone number is actually distributed quite widely he's had the same number for a decade and so on it does sort of raise the question about who else is texting the prime minister and what about i also had people saying that obviously this is specifically quite sensitive because it's tax you know hmrc is independent for a reason The Treasury has always had rules around not discussing individuals' tax affairs. So there's some sensitivity because this was taxed as well.
2: I think the other point, George, is it's technology is what makes this different. 20 years ago, it just was not that easy to get to the Prime Minister, however much of a friend you were of his or hers. You were disintermediated, you called, you had to go through switchboards, there were processes and gatekeepers. Now there isn't. Now, if the Prime Minister has given you his personal number, or anybody important has, or if you've got it, You can go straight through to them. They're not disintermediated. There's no officials advising on whether this is an appropriate form of contact or whether you need any help. You can just go straight to them. And so this creates a class of ins and outs. And I think that's the issue.
3: I think on top of that, there's also a question mark over what the proper protocol is after one of these conversations happens. These were not private messages in that they were intended to be shared with Treasury. James Dyson wanted that message to be known, that he needed this to happen. But how those sort of quite casual, immediate text messages are picked up, how they are processed, where they're recorded, how that message is transmitted to other people within government, there seems to be some ambiguity around how that is done and how that should be done.
1: Yes, it's sort of the immediacy of it, isn't it? And the sort of the chatty nature of these exchanges, I think, which has caught many people by surprise.
2: George, if you think about how we do our job by texting and and WhatsApp, the number of contacts we can have, the way we can get directly through to significant people for our job has been completely revolutionised by this too. But do you think, given all that and given the
1: fact how embedded this is in business culture, political culture and journalistic culture, do you think, Robert, there's any prospects of realistic reform in this area?
2: That's a really good question, George. I think that the only thing you can do in circumstances like this, clearly it's nothing wrong or illegal in texting a minister, or an official, the only thing you can do is set the rules much more clearly so that those people know they have to declare those text messages and those conversations, and they have to engage in them, therefore, in a more professional way. And I think you can set standards from the top and say, this is now included in something you have to declare and make transparent, as long as the standards are literally set at the top. And the Prime Minister, in this case, Boris Johnson, but whoever it is, has to say, this is what I now expect from you. Because the point is, people are always going to try to lobby government for what they want. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that at all. It has to be said. The issue is the behaviour of those who are being lobbied just as much as those doing the lobbying. For example, the Treasury comes out of this process tolerably well because although they were lobbied extensively by David Cameron for Greenshill, they behaved correctly and he didn't get a lot of what he wanted. So I think what you have to do is tighten the rules and then set absolute standards from the top.
3: I think sometimes we overcomplicate this a bit as well. I mean, there's no doubt that the immediacy of text message and WhatsApp has changed how we communicate. But we've also all had to learn that shooting off emails or text messages or WhatsApp messages in a work context is different to doing it in a personal context. The tone is different and how you phrase things are different. And there are certain things you don't say in those messages. We've all had to learn that. And there's no doubt that the tone of these did not fit. There would have been a different tone in these messages had they been put down on paper. We've all had to learn professionally that you need to use these new communication tools in a professional manner. So we've got
1: elections coming up on May the 6th across the United Kingdom. Opposition politicians have been trying to get this to cut through to ordinary voters. Let's hear the SNP's Westminster leader, Ian Blackford, on the subject. Last March, the Prime Minister and the Chancellor had all the time in the world to fix contracts for a closey club of friends and Tory donors, but didn't have any time to support the millions of self-employed. Those three million people didn't have a David Cameron or a James Dyson to text the Prime Minister for them. Robert, how much does this sort of thing travel beyond the Westminster bubble? Sleaze seemed to work as an issue for Blair back in the 1990s, but that was in the context of a country that was already crying out for change. Do you think it will work for Starmer? And
2: that's the key point. I think it helps if people have already got sick of a government. It also has to be said that most voters think most politicians are sleazy and in it for themselves. They don't think this is something unique to the Conservative Party. They think it of whoever is in government. It's just that the Tories are in government more often. So I think, unlike the expenses scandal, which massively cut through to voters, I'm not sure this one is cutting through heavily yet, other than reinforcing a message that it's all a bit cosy. So I would be surprised if what we have so far made a really significant difference in the elections.
1: And Helen, aren't Tory governments more susceptible to this kind of charge than Labour governments? I mean, think back to Tony Blair's closeness to Rupert Murdoch, to Bernie Eccleston at Formula One, for example.
3: I don't know. I mean, I would say the fact that the Conservative Party is traditionally the party of business, probably Plays into this idea of cosiness with big business interests. But actually, if you look at the relationship between the Conservative Party and government over the last few years and the, the business community, it's been pretty fractious, frankly. And in Brexit, many big businesses felt they were, you know, either willfully ignored or frustrated in terms of what the government was doing and their interests. So I'm not sure it holds at the moment. I would just say on the cut-through point, I think on the Dyson one specifically, it's pretty tough. When you look at this and say, okay, what was the outcome? You've got people here that you wanted to get here to make ventilators. The fiscal impact is pretty close to zero, although we don't know how many people used this change. But when you look at the actual sort of real-world impact, it's pretty minor.
1: And very briefly to both of you, Robert first is Boris Johnson the right person to clear up this apparent mess?
2: Well, unless he's about to become a poacher turned gamekeeper, and one should never underestimate the shamelessness of the Prime Minister in jumping on the right horse if he feels it's politically expedient to do so. I personally find it difficult to believe it because I think he has a certain cavalier approach to the rules and belief that bold strokes are more important than pity-fogging processes. So although I think there will definitely be some rule changes and some tightening, I think the absolute attitude that comes from the top is probably not one that is going to scream standards. Helen?
3: Totally agree. I mean, you know, when you talk about professionalising and abidance to rules, you don't think of Boris Johnson as the sort of standard-bearer for (laughs) that.
1: Great sir. Helen and Robert, thanks very much. Despite further lobbying revelations, the week started rather well for Boris Johnson and his government as ministers quickly joined the clamour of outrage from football fans were plans by 12 of Europe's biggest clubs, including the so-called Big Six of English Football, to create a European Super League. This was Culture Secretary Oliver Dowden promising to put fans in the driving
4: seat. One of the things that struck me in the conversation that the Prime Minister and I had with fans yesterday, they talked about how um, a few years back, many fans did have stakes in a, a number of clubs. Over time, those they've been brought out of those. I think it's important that the fan-led review does look at how we can ensure that fans do have a financial
0: stake in their clubs.
1: So I'm joined by Steve Parrish, the chairman of the mighty Crystal Palace, who are decidedly not one of the clubs hoping to join the European Super League, and Murad Ahmed, our sports editor. Steve, you and I bump into each other from time to time, and I always want to talk to you about football, and you always want to talk about politics. Can you firstly just tell us a bit about your politics and your upbringing in a very political household?
5: Yes, my dad was a trade union leader. So um, we were quite left wing. I mean, I think he was centre left, really, and quite practical. So politics has been a part of my life since as early as I can remember. I would be honest and say that my politics probably aren't exactly the same as his anymore. But I think partisan politics is part of the problem. I think that we need to address as many issues as possible with common sense and without the ideological dogma that we seem to address everything now. So... um, always fascinate George, when we have our conversation. So, uh, yes, I've got
1: an avid interest in it. Moran Ahmed, you've been covering this story since it broke on Sunday. Have you ever seen such a debacle?
4: Not really. I mean, uh, one of the things that have been going on is that the Super League talks have been going on for years, really. And, you know, I've been quietly churning away stories about it. It's when they actually broke cover late on a Sunday night with the story already having leaked out hours earlier, protests, already against a competition that hadn't even been launched yet. One of the turning points, I'm told, for people that were within the talks was Gary Neville, the Sky Sports pundit and ex United player, turning on his club, turning on the team owners and going on a lengthy on-air rant which went viral. So opposition for this had mobilized in advance of the launch and then collapsed two days later with grovelling apologies from team owners. I, I've never seen anything quite like it.
1: Uh, Steve Parish, Boris Johnson was threatening a legislative bomb to stop the English clubs joining the Super League. Has football lost the ability to govern itself, do you think? And do the politicians need to step in, maybe set up an independent regulator?
5: Well, look, I don't think football has lost the ability to govern itself. Uh, what, what I think right now is the right people have been given back the reins. And really, in many ways, this is a gift to football because we have lived under the persistent threat of this for as long as i've been in football and most people tell me for the last 20 years and last week they banked incredible gains in the champions league coefficients that distribute the money unevenly and favor them so it was extraordinary that they went ahead with this given the possibility that for success following gary's intervention and the general outpouring from everybody so I think this is a fabulous week for football. I think now, collectively in the Premier League and around football, we have to be seen to do the right things. And I hope if we do that and we have sensible conversations with government, we can set the game up really well for the next 10 years, 20 years at least. Okay, well, after the backpedalling
1: by the so-called Big Six English clubs, there was a lot of apologies to be distributed. This is uh, Mikel Arteta, the Arsenal manager.
2: The way he has been handled, obviously... Um, has had terrible consequences, and um, and that it was a mistake. And um, I have to really respect that when people has genuine intentions to do the best for this football club. But if it doesn't happen, if it's not the right thing to do, they can
0: stand up here and and apologise.
1: But are apologies enough, Murad Ahmed? What are the options for the politicians arising from this debacle? Do you think we'll see them moving to further regulate the national game?
4: Well, it's a really important question, this, because like you said, Boris Johnson said he would drop a legislative bomb. He did move quickly, to be fair. He met with supporters groups, but he's now raised expectations that he will continue to intervene on behalf of the fans on issues related to football. And generally, in the EU, the European Commission came out very quickly and said, look, they don't want to get involved in sports of governance disputes. I have a long history of not doing that. So all the European politicians had cover there. In Britain, post-Brexit, that's not the case. And indeed, a lot of the club owners, I'm told, were really worried that that threat post-Brexit Rang true. You know, you could do things like have tighter restrictions, visa restrictions on overseas players, target clubs for punitive taxes, all sorts of different things that are now possible. But the big thing is this fan led review of the game that the government has done. And the expectation is that there will have to be some sort of change. I tend to think that after everything has died down and the matches are back on, fans tend to care less about things like the knotty issues of governance Mm. and it kind of falls away and falls out of the agenda. Steve can I ask about that
1: there's been a lot of talk about the German model and fans having a much bigger role in the running of clubs as a club owner do you think that would work here and would you welcome that?
5: Well I'm a fan George and I do have a financial stake in the club (laughs) so obviously I think you know it works well but not every fan has the wherewithal unfortunately to do that and there are a lot of complexities with it I think There are a lot of pluses and minuses of the German system. Their league is dominated by one club, really. There's massive disparity between the prize money for the top club and the bottom club. So the concept that the German model was creating some egalitarian league that benefits the whole of their football in a way that we don't isn't reasonable. So there's a lot of good in the English game. People are trying to liken the Super League to when the Premier League was formed. It's nothing like it. You know, the Premier League was just all the clubs that happened to be in the league at the time selling their own media deal and some of their own commercial deals. It wasn't disconnected from the rest of football through relegation places, through promotion places. So we need to keep the key principles in place in football, but we do need to look at the wider game and how it can be best served. It's important that everything's on the table, including salary caps. It's just extraordinary the way that these guys think, the arrogance that they have a right to constantly always be at the top of the game. In a competitive competition, it's mind-boggling for most people.
4: Steve, if I ask Murad about that,
1: do you think this episode has exposed the power of Europe's biggest clubs or rather the reverse, exposed their weaknesses?
4: I think a bit of both. I mean, under the cover of the week, UEFA, European football's governing body, has pushed through a massive reformat of the Champions League And there are talks ongoing to give the biggest clubs greater power over the competition, including over the commercial rights of the competition. Money and power is still flowing towards these clubs. The one thing that has changed is that this constant threat of breaking away, of having this competition all to themselves, is gone. It's exploded. It's gone out to the market. And the market of fans said, absolutely not, no way. So they're not going to be able to keep doing this, which I think will hopefully rebalance the power a little bit so that when governing bodies talk about solidarity, handing money back down through the football pyramid to smaller teams, they will hopefully have a better hand. Steve, Crystal Palace have some American investors. Would
1: they rather the Premier League was a closed league without any prospect of relegation? Not at
5: all, no. I mean, they understand what's important and you can't cap your failures if you don't want to cap your potential to succeed. But I would just come back on Ored's point because, you know, people are talking about lots of things that they want to do, short term punishments. We really need to get to the number of this. And unfortunately, people glaze over.
1: OK, can I bring it back just to politics of both of you at the end, given what you just said there, Steve? Do you think that the politicians do need to get involved in this? I mean, there's obviously always a temptation to weigh in on the sides of fans. It's the people's game and so on. Do you think we need some kind of legislative change?
5: Well, look at what's happened with Boris at the moment. You know, somebody's texted Boris and had access that they shouldn't have had, albeit in a pandemic, in a crisis. And there's oversight and governance and scrutiny. And people seem to think that when Tep Blatter and Platini went, that everything was fine at UEFA now and there were no problems. Where is the governance and the oversight of this organisation? We need root and branch reform at UEFA, and they need to revisit all of these proposals. It isn't a question of a little shift in the balance of power.
1: Well, Murad, on that, if Steve's right about this and UEFA's failing, surely it is the responsibility of politicians, whether at a national or at an EU level, to do something about it.
4: Well, unfortunately, I'm a bit of a cynic on this. The reason why the Super League failed was that the fans had a huge backlash against it and politicians were responding to their electorates in opposing it. When the football starts going again you will find that fans are also very willing to support incredibly rich owners, Manchester City, Manchester United, Liverpool and so on. And everything they do, they'll still carry on supporting their teams, carry on supporting their huge amounts of spending and all the money that flows into the game as long as they keep winning. And so that impetus for huge reform for the big clubs to continue to kind of locking their places into the Champions League by default, which is what Steve is complaining about, it's still there. And it largely does actually come from the fans. The arrogance of the team owners of the big six and the so-called dirty dozen that joined the Super League was that they really believed that the fans actually would probably swallow this and want to have Bayern Munich versus Manchester United on a regular basis. That is actually what they wanted. And I'm not sure that impetus and that desire to have these big games, has disappeared.
1: Murad and Steve, thank you very much for joining us and I'm sure Steve would agree that if you're a football fan tiring a bit of the antics of the big six and you fancy supporting a proper team with real fans, come down to sell his part season tickets are on sale now, aren't they Steve? Absolutely. (laughs) So listen, that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts and your smart speaker to receive episodes as soon as they're released. And we'd love to hear your comments on the show. Paint Politics was presented by me, George Parker, and produced by Anna Dedder and Josh DeLamere. The sound engineer is Breen Turner. Until next time, thanks for listening.